Thank you. Please be seated. We have uh, before us Second Peter chapter 1. We come uh, to the end of this chapter. We'll be here for a couple of weeks. We already considered this matter of the eyewitness testimony confirming the word of the prophets. Consider today the difference between proof and persuasion. But let's pick up here as we read together, starting in verse uh, 16 in this uh, letter. Peter, as we have read, is about to die, and he is wanting them to be on a firm foundation as he departs, namely the word of God. So here we have, starting in verse uh, 16 for context, uh, his uh, dying will and testament, if you like. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray once more together. O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy, Sp- <coughs> Holy Spirit, <coughs> we pray that that uh, same testimony and revelation which the apostles knew as they learned of the Christ, not from experience and evidence merely, but by a revelation from the on high. We pray that you too would seal this word to our hearts and reveal to us your holy will. Enlighten that word that you have inspired, Holy Spirit, that today we might see by its light for Christ's sake. Amen. Some of you might have heard the name of Dr. Simon Greenleaf. There's a school of law named after him. Um, He was one of the founders of the Harvard School of Law, and he and Justice Joseph Story, the man whom he succeeded, are credited with giving the Harvard School of Law its reputation and standing that it has today. But he's famous for several reasons. He also wrote a, a series of books on law and evidence. As a matter of fact, Chief Justice Fuller of the U.S. Supreme Court said of Dr. Greenleaf, he is the highest authority in our courts with respect to evidence. The American Dictionary of Biography says that Dr. Greenleaf is, quote, the single greatest authority on evidence in the entire literature of legal procedure. Evidence was his specialty. In the middle of the 19th century, he wrote a massive work called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence that is still considered 
the greatest single authority on evidence. And he's famous for one more reason. He was a famous skeptic of Christianity. One time in class, though, when he was expressing some of his skeptical views, one of his students asked him a question. Maybe you can guess what it was. Uh, the student asked him why he didn't believe in Jesus. And have you ever examined the evidence? Well, <clears throat> actually, no, he hadn't. This man, who is called the greatest authority on legal evidences in the history of the world and a notable skeptic, had never considered the evidence for belief or his own unbelief. But he thought that this was a worthy project. So he began to embark on the study of the evidence, the biblical, historical, archaeological, and logical testimony, and to put the claims of the Bible to the test. Dr. Greenleaf writes, if a close examination of the evidences of Christianity may be expected of one class of men more than another, it would seem incumbent upon lawyers who make the law of evidence one of our peculiar studies. Our profession leads us to explore the mazes of falsehood, to detect its artifices, to pierce its thickest veils, to follow and expose its sophistries, to compare the statements of different witnesses with severity to discover truth and separate it from error. What was the result? Well, as he put it later in a letter to his friend, for myself, I must say that I have for many years made the evidences of Christianity the subject of close study. And his conclusion? Well... You could read it. He wrote a whole book on it called An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice, in which he demonstrates, quote, that the facts related by the four evangelists are proved by competent and satisfactory evidence. And he says, just as a matter of simple honesty, we need to believe in Jesus. Well, I could tell you many such stories of people that have come to believe in this way. Um, one famous atheist archaeologist in Oxford wanted to make a career disproving the facts of the Bible. So he collected a bunch of funding for a Mediterranean expedition so he could go and visit the various places and then publish a book discrediting Christianity. Well, he wrote the book all right, but not the one his friends expected. He became a believer on that journey. In 1915, Sir William Ramsey published The Bearing of Recent Discoveries on the Trustworthiness of the New Testament. He writes, quote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Um, Tom Anderson used to be president of the California Law Trial Lawyers Association. He was voted by the National Law Journal as one of the top 10 trial lawyers of our time. And he too was encouraged to begin a study of the evidence. And he says, quote, my four-month study was motivated to find a loophole, any loophole in the truths of Christ. Finding none scared me. Eventually in 1998, 
he wrote a book about how he'd become a Christian, being, quote, awed, amazed, and convicted by the evidence. And uh, one more, Dr., uh, excuse me, uh, Sir Lionel Luck, who uh, lives in the Caribbean, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the most successful uh, defense attorney in history. 248 murder trials uh, were... Uh, um, uh, uh, he defended the uh, he defended the um, accused, and in all of them, he managed to get an acquittal. Um, if anybody can find a loophole, right in uh, in a case, if anybody could take a case apart and find out where it's gone wrong, it was him. He too has written a very similar book. Well. Dr. Greenleaf, uh, to quote him once more, says, In examining the evidence for the Christian religion, it's essential to the discovery of the truth that we bring to the investigation a mind freed as far as possible from existing prejudice and open to conviction. There should be a readiness on our part to investigate with candor, to follow the truth wherever it may lead us, and to submit without reserve or objection to all the teachings of this religion if they be found to be of divine origin. He points out that despite all the objective evidences, which there are for us to believe, proof and persuasion are different things. There's plenty of evidence, and evidence has its place. But proof is one thing. Persuasion is another. What's the difference I'd like to begin today by considering the difference with you between proof and persuasion. First, proof. Ours is not a religion of myths or cunningly devised fables, as Peter put it. Our holy book wasn't revealed in a cave to one man by an angel our book wasn't the supposed translation of golden plates translated behind a sheet with a man looking into a hat. It wasn't found by sitting and meditating on uh, wisdom or collecting folk stories of a long time ago and far away. Peter, as we've seen in this passage, wants us to know that we have every reason to believe and why. In verses 16 through 18, he boldly states that the apostles... Switching, you notice, to the plural here, going now to the plural. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard the voice of God, this eyewitness testimony. He says, confirms the holy scriptures. There is abundant reason, evidence, to believe what we believe. And I sent you yesterday in the email with a bulletin, a sermon by Vodi Bauckham that puts this as clearly and wonderfully and powerfully as I've ever heard. His sermon is called, Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. I can do nothing like he can do it. He, you, you've got to see him uh, give a, a sermon on this text. His outline is this. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses reporting supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine and not of human origin. 
That's quite a mouthful. But by the end of the sermon, you'll know that sentence. And if you haven't seen the sermon, I urge you to, to watch it. Show it to your children. Many people today have misinformation about the Bible. They have learned falsehoods that keep them from even looking into it. They need to know the truth. Vody himself was fresh off the college campuses when he gave that sermon, and uh, he was uh, uh, able to handle many of the questions that people have today. So, well, our confession of faith states it this way. There are many reasons, many objective reasons, for us to know that the Bible is the Word of God, the power of the teaching, the consent of all the parts, the entire perfection thereof, um, and, and many other things, it says, uh, show that verse 21 is exactly right. Prophecy has never come about by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I mean, what we have here is a book written by, what, some 40, 45 people over the course of some, what, 1,500 years, including kings, poets, prophets, a physician, farmers, shepherds, fishermen. In God's amazing grace, he even inspired a tax collector. They wrote their books over a period of 1,500 years in places from Babylon to Rome. Many of them didn't even know each other, and it's joined perfectly to reveal God's purpose and work in reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ. So our confession says, there are many arguments whereby the Bible does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Evidence is not lacking, yet, it says, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Did you get that? How do we know that this is the word of God? Well, we could go for a study of the evidence and we could be convinced if our eyes are open, if Dr. Greenleaf's uh, instructions are followed, if we are honest, we must be convinced. We have every reason for evidence, for confidence, rather, objectively speaking. But subjectively speaking, we find that there is a big difference between proof and persuasion. Let's come secondly now to persuasion. Peter puts it this way in our passage in verse 19. We have the prophetic word confirmed. I mean, it is true, objectively speaking. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Our Christian conviction is entirely, eminently reasonable based on fact and reality. But our conviction of that truth ultimately doesn't come from evidence or even argument. We give evidence, we give argument, but conviction comes from the voice of God speaking directly to us in and through the Word. When He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will take of mine and give it to you. 
there's a barista in town, I know, who has read the Bible through four times. He says he never got much out of it. The last time, actually, he said he enjoyed it the most because he decided he'd just read it through as a story. On the other hand, there's a man at my old church in Charlotte who uh, retired from work after several years. He decided that in his, uh, in his retirement, he'd like to spend a few years reading the classics that he'd always wanted to read. Um, after going through several on his list, he got around to the Bible. He was going to read it because it worked that he'd never read before. That's all he was expecting to do. It brought him to his knees. The man was soundly converted, his life utterly transformed. What's the difference? The same book? The same revelation? All the same reasons to believe it. What is the difference? At a crucial point in gospel history, the Lord asked his disciples this fateful question, who do you say that I am? Peter answered for the group, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter had gotten it right. Now you say he should have gotten it right. All those miracles that he'd seen, the world had never seen anything like this. But what did Jesus say in response? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. There's a big difference between proof and persuasion. Jesus did countless miracles. Some saw those miracles and decided it was the power of the devil. Others worshipped him. The great Irenaeus explained it this way in the second century. The Lord taught us that no one is able to know God unless they are taught by God. God cannot be known without the help of God. It's not that the evidence is lacking. It's that the people are spiritually blind. Many people are kept from believing or even from inquiring by misinformation. Uh, they, they need to be told the truth. They need to be corrected. Oh, that, that Bible, it's been corrupted by thousands and thousands of monks over the years. Well, watch Vodi if you want a thorough answer to that. They do need to be corrected. However, it's also pretty obvious that hardly anyone comes to believe in the divine authority of the Bible simply by examining the evidence for its reliability. We do invite the most careful investigation of the Bible and its claims, but that examination is not how a person comes to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Our confidence in the Bible comes in the same way it came to Peter and the other disciples. The morning star rises in our hearts. The light has shone in a dark place. We have come by the power of the Holy Spirit face to face with the one to whom the scriptures testify.
It's a very unsettling thing, but it's the most wonderful thing in the world. I don't know what your experience is reading the Bible. It's a good thing to read the Bible, but you need to meet the author. You meet the author, you'll know the truth of the Bible. Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them. Our confidence in the Bible, for most of us, comes in train with an encounter with Jesus Christ himself. Even all those men I mentioned earlier from the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, they began with a study of evidence. They had their objections answered. But most unsettling of all, they came to an encounter with Jesus himself. And his sheep heard his voice. And this is how it comes to us all. It's only often as a result of this that our confidence in Christ, our Savior, is then transferred and built up in a book in which his word and message is found. We come to meet and know Christ. And our confidence in him becomes transferred to the book in which his message is found. Peter in the passage has more to tell us. We'll consider next time about how prophecy comes, not by the will of man, but as men spoke being moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. I will give more explanation of that. What about this matter of private interpretation? Interpretation is all the rage right now. What about how we should interpret it and whether the Bible has come through man's interpretation? Well, more to say. But today I'd like to conclude by taking you the rest of the way on this journey. There is proof, evidence, an abundance of it, reason to believe. There's persuasion where God himself reveals his truth in his Son. And it's supremely that in knowing him that we learn the truth of these things and ultimately then transfer our confidence in God, in Christ, into these scriptures that the Holy Spirit has inspired. And so I'd like to conclude this journey by meditating with you briefly, with five subpoints, about what Jesus taught about these scriptures. If we've come to know him, we really want to know, what did he think? What did he believe about these writings? Well, Peter has gotten his information, of course, uh, directly from the Lord Jesus. Maybe you'd like to turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 22. I think I can establish all five points convincingly from some verses here of the Lord himself. What did Jesus believe and specifically teach about the scriptures that Peter would say such things. Well, already noted, Jesus taught the divine inspiration of the scriptures. Here in Matthew 
22, Jesus is answering his um, gainsayers, people that are challenging him on this matter or that, um, questioning him um, uh, about various things. Now, he is asking them some questions. Uh, verse uh, 42, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Jesus said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying the Lord, that is Jehovah, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and make your enemies, until I make your enemies your footstool. David in the spirit calls him Lord. This passage, like Peter's passage, teaches the human side. Here's a holy man of God speaking. It also teaches the divine side. He said, by the Spirit. Holy man of God spoke as they were moved or carried along, borne along by the Spirit. Is it a human word? Yes, David said it. Is it God's word? Yes, he said it in the Spirit. The fullness of humanity has gone in and the fullness of deity. We don't believe in the typewriter theory of inspiration or the dictation theory, except on rare occasions. It's the organic inspiration, the fullness of humanity and the fullness of the divine leadership. So just as Christ himself is 100% man and 100% God, so the scriptures themselves are organically inspired in this way, breathed out by God, through men. It's kind of like uh, some of you have been done sketches before. You have a bunch of colored pencils. Uh, you, you pick the, pe- the colors that you like the best. You, you make this beautiful picture here. So, so all the human authors, they have their own coloring, if you, if you like. They, they, uh, these colors are uh, taken up and selected by the author of the scriptures namely the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter meant when he said that holy men of God spoke as they were moved, or some of you have carried along by the Holy Spirit. A writer's education, his mannerisms, his eloquence in the case of David, his abruptness in the case of Amos, right? A prophet wearing bib overalls. I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, right? Uh, All of these are taken up by God for his purpose, to have his word committed to writing through men. And what we have is the word of the author, uh, the, the human author, truly, as it were, in the hand of God. That it is 100% man, and more importantly, 100% God. By one count, the prophets said, the Lord said, or the Lord, the Lord spoke, some 3,800 times in the Old Testament alone. So the Bible uh, says that what you hold in your hand is the Word of God, a very astonishing thing, a priceless gift that you have been given. I've asked you before, and I'll ask you again, if you had a letter that God had sent you from heaven, if you got into your mailbox and you opened it up and there was a letter addressed to you, return address, heaven, And it was a letter from God. Would that letter not become worn and tattered with all your folding and unfolding and reading and rereading and showing it to others and pondering over every word, committing it to your heart, 
knowing who it was who wrote that and for what purpose, that you might be saved, that you might live forever in eternal life with him, the life of true happiness in, in this world and beyond. Would you not? Well, it was uh, Cornelius Van Til, I think, that said, I've never met the Lord, but he has written me a letter. And this is to be the way that we receive it. Not as the word of men, not as coming about by any private interpretation, but as being inspired by God himself, says Peter. Jesus, secondly, taught not only uh, inspiration, but the divine authority of the scriptures. Uh, Verse 31 here in our uh, chapter in Matthew. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was, interestingly here, spoken to you by God? saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A very interesting turn of phrase. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? He's referring, of course, to what God spoke to Moses at the bush. Uh, what Moses wrote for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, is what we call the book of Exodus. But you, uh, this is what Peter says in his letter, to which you must give heed about the, the Old Testament here. What about the New Testament? It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. For they were writing and speaking not their own words, but as it were, the word of Christ himself. At the end of Peter's second letter, we won't go there now, but he, uh, he writes that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. The apostles were very self-conscious that what they were writing was very much on the same par as those prophets who were before. They confirmed the prophetic word. They taught by divine inspiration and divine authority, as Jesus himself says. Third, Jesus taught the divine infallibility and inerrancy of the Scriptures. Not that there's a big difference, but I'm just covering all my bases. The infallibility and inerrancy of the Scriptures. Uh, Verse 29 Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, or in error, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. When the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus with a question, he said, Hey, you're in error because you don't know the Scriptures. The implication, of course, is that the Scriptures are without error. Why? It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, You're in error because you know the Scriptures, which also err, no, People today think the Bible is full of errors, contradictions. That is certainly not Jesus' view. People are full of errors because they don't know the Scriptures. That's Jesus' view. But the Bible is not full of such errors. Now, maybe somebody says, well, Jesus was just accommodating himself to the beliefs of the Jews. Oh, no. In this very chapter, Jesus shows that he does not tolerate any popular errors 
in, in this very passage, he is publicly rebuking and correcting common misunderstandings and falsehoods. He taught the divine infallibility and inerrancy of the scriptures, which is why Peter says you better give heed to them. Because this is the word of God, not by men's private interpretation, which would be fallible, but the Holy Spirit carrying them, or, uh, well, my translation says moved, fair enough, but um, uh, uh, we have a Christopher back here, a Christ-bearer. Uh, that Pharaoh word uh, uh, is the, the same word here, to bear, to carry along, uh, like I'm carrying this book. The men carried in the very hands of the Holy Spirit to write. Uh, Jesus taught the divine infallibility and inerrancy of the scriptures. Fourth, you notice from the same chapter here, he taught the divine preservation of the scriptures. That's a very contemporary matter. Jesus said to them, you're mistaking, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Verse 32. uh, Here it is. Verse 32. um, Hey, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Is the Bible highly corrupt? Someone will ask, I heard that. Well, you notice how he's hanging his argument on the tense of a verb. God had preserved the word given through Moses. Jesus makes regular use of uh, single letters sometimes in order to convincingly prove that this is the truth that we need to believe. Um, saying uh, elsewhere, uh, he called them gods uh, to whom the word of God came. So uh, he's, he's, he's hanging it on letters and tenses of verbs and single words, this accuracy of the Bible, which, of course, we have plenty of objective reason to believe. My point to you today is that Christ himself says it extends to the very jot and the very tittle. Elsewhere he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You'll know that um, Mormons and Muslims have this as a chief article of their faith. Why they need another revelation? Because the church has corrupted the Bible. That's a profound argument from ignorance. You listen to Vody, he gives you plenty of reason. My point to you is that... When we have come to know Christ, we have come to know one who himself believes in the divine preservation of the scriptures. And finally, Jesus called our canon um, the scriptures. Jesus called our canon, the Bible that we have, the scriptures, the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In this chapter, he makes reference to the law, and the prophets, and the Psalms. He quotes them all. And uh, it's because Jesus was using the same Bible that we had. Jesus and the New Testament writers quoted every section of the Old Testament as authoritative. They referred in uh, various places to 18 of the 22 books. And Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken, right? Josephus writes in the first century of the... uh, 
well, uh, the Hebrew count is a little different. They don't separate First and Second Kings. They gather together the minors, things like that. Uh, he, he, Josephus lists out the 22 books that we have as well. Jesus says the scriptures can't be broken. It was his final appeal. Have you not read? Confronted by the devil, he quotes again and again as his sure weapon of defense. It is written. He derided his adversaries. You're mistaken not knowing the scriptures. Jesus quoted Moses to say that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. These were... um, these were his life, these words. Somebody did a count and found out that one out of every ten red-letter verses in your red-letter Bible, if you have one of those, contains a biblical quotation or reference or allusion. Jesus was Mr. Bible. He believed and loved and taught the Bible and promised not one jot or one tittle would pass from the law till all things were fulfilled. Jesus calls this God's word. More than I could say. More than I can say about all these things. But, but here it is. Jesus taught its inspiration, its authority, its inerrancy, its preservation, and he called our uh, Bible, the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms, the Scriptures, and refers himself to most of the books directly. Well, in conclusion, this persuasion has a tremendous effect. Um, The evidence may not do anything for us. The words themselves, well, good to give heed to until the morning star rises in our hearts. But once it's risen, we can never be the same people again.